Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're moving into the prophetic literature with Micah 1, 1 to 5, 5, 2 to 5a, and 6, 6 to 8, one of the most famous passages in all of the Hebrew Bible. We talk about the prophet Micah, who prophesied to the Jerusalem elites reminding them that the economic and military decisions of the centralized authority have profound effects on people living far away from the centers of power. Micah envisions a new ruler for the community, reaching all the way back to Bethlehem, to the time before David was king, to call for a humble shepherd who will gently guide the people toward peace and prosperity, rather than exploiting his own economic and military power. Talk about Micah's famous instruction to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, which calls us back to the Torah and to the concrete actions that make for beloved community, both then and now. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you? I am also good. We're in this, like... Like, I feel like it's a special time of the calendar precisely because it's not special. We're, like, not in the middle of a sacred time for the Jews, and we're not in the middle of a sacred time for the Christians (laughs) either. Like, we just finished this massive Jewish sacred time. Yeah. We're heading in a few weeks into this period of Christian sacred time. Yeah. I don't know. There's something really lovely about just being in regular time. It's regular. Regular is good. Regular is good. That's funny that you say that because I was, I just, I've been thinking like, I mean, because like in secular time, we're in the middle of a bunch of stuff, right? So we're between Halloween and Thanksgiving. Yeah, and I guess that's It just feels true. like a lot of stuff is coming. And so I was just thinking how, how much we're sort of gearing up for stuff. Um, but maybe the time when you're like headed into, you know, we're headed into Advent. So for Christians, everything's kind of gearing up. And yeah, your that community makes, is coming out of high holidays. So you're all gearing down. But yeah, I mean, it is normal time. Kind of normal time. It's kind of normal time. Normalish time. Technically, it's normal. Ordinary time, we call it. In the ordinary. That sounds better Christian than normal tradition. time. Normal time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Amy. So we are making a shift this week, which I always find a little bumpy in the narrative lectionary when we move from lovely narrative texts that have the story. You know, last time we were in the story of Naaman and we were, yeah, no, it's just a nice narrative and you can pull out stuff from narratives. We're moving mostly for the next few weeks and uh, absolutely for this and next week into prophetic poetry. And both of those things are significant. I feel like you often comment on the shift into poetic texts. I was wondering, are you feeling that this year? Like we're moving into a different kind of literature? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, 
you know, we you joked before we hit record that like with these episodes, we're like, will we be done in 20 minutes or will this take three hours? <laughs> yeah. Like, because there are not many lines to cover. There's yeah. not much of a, yeah. we could summarize this text for you real quick. Oh, yeah. And and the question is like, and I, I always feel like it's a live question. Like, am I going to read this poem and have some kind of portal opened where, you know, there's just so much to sort of pull out and so many metaphors to explore? Or am I going to read it and just sort of feel like, okay, I'm picking up what you're laying down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. And I, I mean, I feel like I don't, I don't have a special system for like, you, I can't just press the button and be like, now we'll have a mystical experience. Yeah. I mean, I... I don't know what will happen. <laughs> I, I don't know what will happen. Yeah, no, I so, absolutely agree. So today we'll we're try in, to slow down though. We're in the book of Micah, and we're in three little sections of Micah following the narrative lectionary. We're gonna read one one to five, which is just a slight expansion of the narrative lectionary. And then we'll be in five, two to five A, and then six, six to eight. So uh, there really is. There's only, I mean, what is that? Like 10 verses or something like that there. Mm-hmm but they're mm-hmm. poetic and they're prophetic and oftentimes that can unfold in unexpected ways. The other thing about the way we do Bible worm, which I think is exactly the way that, you know, you and I both think about reading texts is you never quite know what's going to be in a text until the two of us are talking about it together and a lot a yeah. lot unfolds in the interaction between different readers, which yeah. to me is one of the beautiful things about reading the Bible. Yeah. But it also means it's very hard to control exactly yeah. like <laughs> yes. where things are going to go. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely, there's at least one wild card, maybe several in this conversation. So I will remind our listeners and maybe ourselves as well that we did talk about the book of Micah a little bit this past summer in our special series, summer mm-hmm. series on economic justice. We started where this text today ends we, we started with Micah 6, 6 to 15 in the summer and then continued on in 7, 1 to 7. So if people are interested in going back and getting a little more or seeing what we thought, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes you read the text once, like in a different part of the calendar and also with a different set of verses and you unfold different things about it. Yeah. So that was episode 348, which came out sometime in maybe in July. And so if folks want to go back and, and listen to that episode to try to get some ideas about the uh, the very end of this text that might be worthwhile as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Can you set the stage for us a little bit about the book of Micah? And I mean, even just like, when when is it written and how does it relate to the things we've been doing? So so the book of Micah is one of the prophetic books in the in the Jewish tradition at least it's considered a minor prophet yeah is that a is that a category in the Christian tradition minor prophet minor prophet is a category is yeah, a category we don't tend to yeah. use the book of the 12 which is kind of yeah. in the Jewish tradition is the minor prophets are collected together right most right are collected together in one scroll yeah. of you know of 12 prophets right um yeah so in the Jewish community you also hear Book of the Twelve, but it is definitely not a minor prophet in terms of messaging. I mean, one of the most famous lines from prophecy or maybe the entire Hebrew Bible is in Micah, and we will read it today. I mean, you might have a t-shirt with this line on it. Like, walk humbly with your God is on many a coffee mug. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so it really is sort of one of the greatest hits. In terms of time stamp, 
So it seems like we are probably around the time of the somewhere in the middle of the 8th century BCE when Assyria, one of the neighbors of Israel, is gaining power. Yeah. And the book of Micah has a real, parts of it really have a sense of doom that might be anticipating or reflecting their interactions with yeah. Assyrian neighbors that eventually led to the destruction and dispersion of the northern kingdom. You know, not not too far in the future. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think that's the general timestamp on this, but I don't. Uh, do you feel like we can get more precise than that, or we? Sh- or do you think we need to get more precise than that? Well, I think Micah tries to be precise, but it tries to be exactly where you just placed it. So I think you know, I think that's exactly the right setting. The f- as we'll see in a minute. The first verse of Micah dates to the kings, the reigns of the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. which is exactly the second half of the 8th century. And as you're saying, that is the time when Assyria, which is the big, the two big powers of the first half of the first millennium BCE are Babylon and Assyria, which are all the way over in Mesopotamia, kind of modern day Iraq. And they sort of trade back and forth. And the early in the 8th century, um, where we are here, it's Assyria that's in power. And they were just a brutal, dominating empire. Uh, and they had so much sway all through the ancient Near East. And a lot of the history of Israel and Judah just is in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. If you take those three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, they're kings in the south. But during those, like in the course of those three periods, uh, those three kings, there is a rebellion against Assyria that our old professor John Hayes used to call SPAC, the Syro-Palestinian oh, anti-Syrian right. coalition. Mm-hmm. That's in this time frame. And the destruction of Samaria, the destruction of the Northern Kingdom Israel is in this time period. And so it was very fraught with political intrigue and uh, different people in Israel and Judah had different allegiances. Some of them wanted allegiance to Assyria. Some of them wanted to rebel against Assyria. There was military conflict between the Assyrians, the Israelites, and the uh, Judeans, but also between the, the Judeans and the Assyrians, and, I mean, the Judeans and the Israelites, like there was internal conflict, yeah. like is just, it is just a mess economically yeah. and militarily. Yes. And Micah, I think is absolutely responding to all of that. Yeah. And he's responding. I, I feel like part of the question underlying this text and a lot of texts that are in the Israeli discombobulated time in the biblical text are are trying to get to this, like, why is this happening? Not just what should we do. Right. But something bad is happening. Right. What what is causing the universe to be so misaligned? Exactly. That we are suffering in this way. Yeah. And Micah has some ideas about that. Absolutely, he does. The other piece that's in that timestamp is Micah is said to be of Moresheth. Mm-hmm which, as you know, is a little town kind of, I don't know, like 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's down in the Shephelah, so it's in the flat, more agricultural area. It's sort of near Lachish. It is, so it's not an urban center. It's sort of an agricultural area. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see some tension between Micah and Jerusalem. Uh, I think about economic practices 
It is also the case that when the Assyrians invaded, they invaded in the Shephela, but they did not go to, like they sent people to Jerusalem, but they didn't attack Jerusalem because it's up in the hills and it's complicated. So the people in the region of Micah, Moresheth, and Lachish, they had a military invasion where the elites in Jerusalem were a little bit protected from it. And so there's this sort of interesting, interesting. like regional differences, uh, who is vulnerable militarily, who is providing for whom agriculturally, mm-hmm. where are the decisions being made. And so Micah, we talked a little bit I think it was last time about central prophets and peripheral prophets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Micah is a peripheral prophet. Uh, he is not part of the Jerusalem elite. He is not even in Jerusalem. He mm-hmm. is out in the Shephela. He is an agriculturalist. His like his people are farmers, mm-hmm. uh, and his people are bearing the brunt of economic and military uh, unease. I think in the area. So it's a mm-hmm. it's a I mean a really rich context and in a lot of ways like even just as I'm talking about it I'm like oh yeah those you can see all those same dynamics like in our world today right about who is exposed militarily and who is um, economically distanced from where decisions are being made and and all those things right who where who is making the decisions and then where do the ramifications of those decisions actually fall out exactly yeah so Micah is among the people who are experiencing the ramifications but have very little to say yeah. in the uh, in the actual decisions. My study Bible, the Jewish study Bible, suggests that the primary audience that Micah would have had in mind was the folks in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? That seems right to me. And so the way that I would process this, which I don't know, I don't know what the study Bible was, is saying, but Micah is speaking to the people in Jerusalem on behalf of the people in Moresheth and Lachish, that speaking to the elites on behalf of the agriculturalists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if that's what they mean, then I, f- then I fully agree with that. Cool. <laughs> I do think the piece about he is speaking from the context of the not elites is crucial. He's speaking yes. to elites on behalf of not elites. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is often true. I mean, I suppose of prophets as well. But. Okay. So, We've talked about this timestamp in Micah 1, so we probably don't need to talk about it anymore, but I'm going to read it anyway so we can get ourselves into the uh, spirit of the text. So I'm picking up in Micah 1, 1 to 5, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. The Lord's word that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Judah's kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth, and all that fills it. May the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming out from his place. He will go down and tread on the shrines of the earth. When the mountains will melt under him, the valleys will split apart like wax yielding to the fire, like waters poured down a slope. All this is for the crime of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. Who is responsible for the crime of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? Who is responsible for the shrines of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Mm, That last part fits so squarely with the description that you just offered. I'm so glad you offered that context. Yeah, can you, uh, let's just start there. Can you make that connection for us? Yeah, I mean, so who's responsible for the transgressions of of Jacob? Like for the fact that our people, the people Israel, the people Jacob, has has gone the wrong way 
But he's he's naming here the capital, Samaria exactly. is the capital of the north, and Jerusalem is the capital of the south. And, you know, sort of in the same ways that um, in the more ritually oriented texts in the Torah, like Leviticus will say, like, if a leader of the people, if the high priest starts doing things wrong, there are huge ramifications <laughs> for yeah. that for the people because the people are sort of under the leadership of that person. It's a little different in this case, but if the power is centered in the capitals and they get to set policy and make decisions that in you know that are going to affect everyone when they do it wrong yeah those poor guys out in Moreshet have you know are are going to have the fallout from it but have very little to say in the decision that's exactly right and that's so helpful and one of the things that i really like about appreciate about biblical prophets is they have a very strong sense that the the suffering of people or what they often will talk about as the punishment coming from God is it's communal. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, we're all tied up in this thing together. Yeah. And so it's not the case that what I do determines my outcomes and what you do determines your outcomes. It's yeah. the case that all the people get caught up in this collective. And if the leaders are not good leaders, then we all suffer. And so the communal nature of, it's really trying to get at something like systemic wrongdoing or a systemic evil where decisions that are made in places of power absolutely have effects on people not in places of power. So the people as a whole are being punished for the sins of the, of the elites. I think that's hard to get to sometimes, especially in the Christian tradition, uh, where a lot of times we we think in terms of like individual, like, are you okay with Jesus or whatever? Yeah. But this is very clearly like the community is all, it's all, it's all going to happen to all of us together, even if it's not you that's making the decisions. It's such a, you know, I, I see what you're saying about the Christ, Christian tradition and sort of the sense of individual relationship to Jesus. And I also think it's hard just in American culture, like our culture is so individualistic in terms of how we imagine that our fates work. We're actually in the religious school right now talking a lot with the kids about this, uh, the, the, I guess, Jewish uh, value is our evut, but is this idea that we are all bound up together. Our fates are all bound up together and we are responsible for each other in every way, not just because we want to be nice and good people. Like, that's nice. We should want to be nice and good people. But, like, there's a reality about it. Like, you yeah. know, like, but, like, actually, we actually are. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I and you certainly could talk about it in a totally secular way, too. Yeah, like, that's absolutely We right. can pretend that our decisions don't impact other people, but they certainly do. So when you say it that way, like, it's making me go back to the earlier part of this passage so it, in verse five, where we were just talking, it's, this is for the crime of Jacob and the house of Israel, who is responsible, Samaria and Jerusalem. So it's mm-hmm. sort of local, but the pro, the prophetic oracle is actually given in verse two, all you peoples pay attention, all the earth, the Lord is a witness against you. That is the Lord, the Lord is a witness against the whole world, the Lord from his holy temple And then you get uh, in verse three, God is going to come down and tread on the shrines of the earth. So there's this real sense in which it's not just 
that the crimes of Jerusalem and Samaria have effect for Israel and Jacob, but in fact, this like global suffering of the whole Mm -hmm. earth, all the peoples, is due to the wrongdoings of these two specific places. Can you help me think about that? I have two different thoughts, and I don't know which one to start with, but I'll, okay, I'll start with this one. So, I mean, I think maybe from the perspective of this text, at least, you know, we've talked about the idea that Israel is supposed to be a people through which all people are blessed. And so I guess, as I'm saying this, I'm like, what kinds of anti-Semitic tropes could be spun out of the possibility that it's also a people, you know, through which, you know, maybe maybe we don't want to go there. But I wonder if the text has some idea that, like, your actions, even beyond impacting just yourself or your immediate city, like, you don't even know the the ways that they can sort of bubble out through yeah. wider creation. I think that only leads to anti-Semitic trope, and I do think that's a real danger. If the reader sort of says, oh, that was true of Israel in the past, but it's not true of whoever, whatever community I'm a part of today. But clearly mm. it's the case, if you are listening to this, especially in the United States, that the 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 wrongdoings of the U.S. have a global effect, right? Yes. And so the excesses yes. of, the, of the U.S. and the economic um, instability of the U.S., like that ripples out way beyond us. Yeah. And so it is, I mean, it's just self-evidently true in one sense that, especially if you are in a powerful place, that the wrongdoings of the leaders of certain nations have global effects and so I think that, you know, if we, as long as we identify ourselves, whoever we are, as being spoken to here and not sort of like a blaming someone else, then I, yeah. I think that that's an important insight. You said you had two insights. I was curious what the other one was. Well, I don't, I think this might be a wrong-headed one. But when you first read verse two, listen, all you peoples, be heed, O earth, and give heed, O earth, and all it holds, and let my Lord God be your accuser. Mm-hmm. I think the word accuser in my mind sort of flipped this switch. Like, are we going into sort of trial mode where there would be mm. witnesses to, you know, like sometimes a biblical yeah. text calls in witnesses to when the, the covenant has been broken. Yeah. And there's there's going to be ramifications for yeah. that. The CEB translation is actually will be a witness against you. And yeah, so I think you're exactly. Oh, the Hebrew, uh, yeah, is aid. The Lord will be a, a witness. The Lord will be you. a witness against you. So yeah. I guess I wondered in some way if it, I mean, you're right that the ramifications of this do seem to, to impact even the natural world, which has clearly done nothing wrong. <laughs> So the ramifications are much bigger than than the people who have done wrong or their immediate communities or even their nation. But I wonder if some of the calling in of people to to witness and pay attention to what's happening is is like a, a trial. Yeah. No, I think that's important, Amy. And so the God God is a witness against you, Earth. And so something so this is not simply the case that Jerusalem and Samaria have uniquely been irritating God, but somehow the whole earth has also, like the whole earth is kind of caught up 
and God seems to get motivated because of Israel and Judah, but now God is a witness against the whole world. I don't know, because I mean, one thing that I'm trying to think about is like Assyria is also doing some stuff that is problematic. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so uh, God may simply be noticing all of the all of the violence and all of the crime and all of the murder and all of the military aggression and saying like enough enough of this. Right. Yeah. Now this imagery, and particularly in verse four. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split apart. Wax yielding to the fire. Water poured down a slope. I mean, mm. well, I don't know. I want to. I, I want to know what you what you do with that imagery of melting and splitting and wax and. I'm just. I am particularly taken by the wax. Yeah. Like the idea that something that seemed to have real substance to it just by being in proximity to the the power of god the power of god like it it loses its it loses its substance and becomes yeah. you know becomes nothing and it's such a it's such an interesting i, I don't it, it's like a destructive image that is not like a, it's like a gentle destruction. Like it's not like it's not like bashing it up or yeah. you know, it's just like just by being in proximity to a real source of power, like yeah. you think you have all this power and are using it all these ways, but just by being in closer proximity to God, the real source of power, you yeah. just become this, you know, running cascade of wax. For some reason, I'm thinking of the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> where that dude's face yes. melts. Tell me <laughs> more like, about yeah, that. That's what it is. You know, I, I think what maybe what's happening here, you know, that the, the uh, metaphor in the Hebrew Bible for anger is your nose is hot. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, when the heat emerges from your nose, like that's when stuff gets real. And so, like, I think this melting is saying, like, God is God's nose is hot, y'all. Like, God is really, really angry right now. We also get the shredding, or sorry, the treading on the shrines. Um, so God seems to be like stomping down. I guess shrines there is high places or something like that. The uh, mm. yes, my translation has has he will come down and stride upon the heights of the earth. So it's not as clearly talking about oh, yeah, shrines, yeah. but. Yeah. Oh, interesting, because how, how you read high place there really does matter, because it does have just like a literal, like it is a place that is higher than other places. Right. Uh, so it sort of everything gets leveled out, or it also high place also has that sense of like a place of illicit worship, a worshiping of things that are not God, and maybe both of those mm. can kind of can kind of go together. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's, I mean, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm so interested in the way that prophecies take place in the Hebrew Bible, and this one is very clear. This is the word of the Lord that Micah saw, like. I I often think of prophecy as auditory, that God sort of s- says something, whispers in your ear, or like you hear words in your heart, you know, and you're like, oh, that's God speaking to me. But this is not that. Micah seems to be having a vision of all of this, and he's relating in words the vision that he has seen. I love that. And now I'm pulling up the Hebrew because I'm 
being a little lazy and just reading my translation, which in the NJPS just says the word of the Lord that came to Micah. It doesn't say anything about the fact that it was a vision, but that I think really speaks to this language that was just here, like that imagining everything, just everything that had form, losing the form that it had. If it was a high place, now it's, now it's not. Yeah. If it was had a solid form, now it doesn't. Yeah. The Hebrew there is just chazah, which very clearly means to see, have it, to have a vision. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bible Worms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. So the narrative lectionary has us moving then to Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5a, and this is quite a famous passage, as you probably recognize in the Christian tradition, because it is often taken as a messianic prediction of the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. Mm. So uh, I'm going to do my very best to bracket that interpretation for myself and also for our Christian listeners until we sort of think about what's it actually maybe doing in Micah. And then, you know, then we can sort of unfold the Christological implications if we, uh, if we feel so moved. So five, two to five A. As for you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are the least significant of Judah's forces, one who is to be a ruler in Israel on my behalf will come out from you. His origin is from remote times, from ancient days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. The rest of his kin will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will dwell secure because he will surely become great throughout the earth. He will become one of peace. I just want to note here that you already pointed out to me, there's a difference in the versification between different publications of the text. So if you happen to be reading the NJPS or a JPS translation, this is actually chapter five, starting at verse one, going through the beginning of verse four instead of two through five. That's really helpful. Yeah, it's so confusing when we're in different. I know. <laughs> like, I'm glad you noticed it this time before we before we started. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly this is talking about a ruler who is to come forth. Mm-hmm. And I want us to talk about that here in a minute. But first, I want to talk about Bethlehem of Ephrathah, which is a very specific place. 
uh, which is described here as least significant of Judah's forces. And I just want to ask you, what do you take to be, if anything, the significance of Bethlehem in this context? Bobby, I don't know. I don't know. Can I put the question back to you? Like, it clearly seems to have significance to it, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. I love that answer because uh, um, I think that's so helpful to read that and not immediately think about either that's where Jesus is from, which is where a lot of Christians go with it, mm-hmm. or I think the more Hebrew Bible place to go is that's where David is from. But it's so interesting that this text is talking about Bethlehem, but it does not mention David. Right. Right. I mean, it seems— I actually got a little more from the second line, at least among the clans of Judah, like this sort of idea of, you know, it starts to sound like the story of David. And of course, just like maybe the Christian tradition might assume like, oh, this is about Jesus. We're going to default to this is about David. (laughs) I guess I just don't have a super strong association. I mean, I guess, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a critical part of Davidness to me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's interesting because, yeah, I never thought about Bethlehem being a critical part of David for me being related to my Christian tradition for which Bethlehem is the city of David, which is why Jesus is from there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just interesting that that's my own sense internal to my Hebrew Bible identity actually is very much informed by my own Christian tradition. I think, uh, so I think you're exactly right on the, like what is emphasized about Bethlehem is not here that it's where David is from. Although I think you would hear that if you were yeah. a 8th century Israelite, you would say, oh, that's where David's from. And so maybe you would think, oh, this is about a Davidic king. But Micah is very reticent I mean, he doesn't use the word David. He doesn't talk about David's line. He's just talking about the place where David is from. And you're exactly right. He's he's emphasizing the leastness of Bethlehem. It's not an important place. It's not where leaders come from. Uh, it, I mean, it's where David came from, but it was surprising when David came from there. Right, right, right. He uses the language of shepherd. Uh, he will stand and shepherd his flock in verse 4 which is also in that David passage in mm-hmm. uh, second in 1 Samuel 16, where David's out shepherding the flock when Jesse and Samuel are trying to figure out which, which of Jesse's sons is the king. So there is all sorts of David-ish imagery here that comes from that text in 1 Samuel, but it is very reluctant, at least I think it's very reluctant to actually name it as as David. To me, that's where the intriguing part about this lies. Why would it be? Do you think it's just that, I mean, like poetry, I guess, often sort of has a, has a precise location, but also wants to gesture towards something bigger. Yeah. But why don't they just name David? So there's two ways of thinking about it. By the way, I uh, read Daniel Smith Christopher's commentary on Micah in the Old Testament library series. Uh, yesterday as I was preparing for this. And I just think it's, he, Daniel Smith Christopher is a Quaker Mennonite. Like he's a Christian from a peace tradition. Mm. And so he reads in these really interesting ways that are all about like anti-militarism and things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and I am very like sympathetic to his way of reading, and I think his commentary is is really smart. And so some of the things that I'm saying, I you know how sometimes when you read something, you're like, do I think that, or does Daniel Smith right. Christopher thinks that? Yeah, yeah. Some of the things that I'm saying today are that way, but I commend people to that commentary if you're interested in that sort of interpretation. He lifts up two possibilities that have been offered in scholarship, and one of them is that this text is trying to go back to David, but it's trying to go back to the David who was the little shepherd boy David, Mm. not the militaristic King David. I love that. So it's trying to lift specific, you know, aspects or characteristics of David or moments in David's life without importing the whole Right. The whole story. Because you're right. There is a big, over the course of David's life, there's a big change. Yeah. I love that. So that reading is like, let's go back to the Davidic line, but let's go back to the very beginning of the Davidic line when it was not so militaristic and puffed up. It was a shepherd trying to do right by God. The other way he offers of reading it is slightly more extreme than that, which is let's go all the way back to Bethlehem which is where the Davidic line came from, but let's do something different than the Davidic line. So then it's like, let's go back there and see if there's somebody else there, (laughs) right? Oh, wow. Uh, Who could be a new leader of a new way of doing things. Because we tried this David thing and it didn't work. Like, look where it got us. It got us into this military conundrum where the people in the Shefela are suffering for the wrongdoings of Jerusalem. And so let's go back to the start of the monarchy and let's find a new way to start over. And so this line, this idea about his origin is from remote times from ancient of days like let's go back to the time back before the monarchy and find somebody else from that time period to to be a new a new ruler of a new king and so it's it's a similar idea to let's correct the davidic line but it's like let's correct it by going some like yeah trying somebody who's not gonna get caught up in this militaristic stuff I love that so much, and I'm so glad I asked that question that I thought was a dumb question because now I have that answer, and that's such a great answer. I love that question because it doesn't assume that we know what we're doing as soon as yeah. we read it. Yeah, yeah, and it ties so much into that the very next part about birth. Like something's going to be born. Yeah, which really, it's not just. I love the idea that this is not just the rebirth of what was. We're not just going back to the you know, trying to go back to the glory days, it really can be something new. Yeah. It made me think about, you know, remember when we were reading The Crossing of the Sea this year? Yes. In Exodus 15, and and we talked about how it, you know, in Torah Ta, that the project that flips all the genders of everything in the entire biblical, entire Hebrew Bible— when you do that in that text, it starts to look a little bit more like birth imagery. Yeah. And like the birth of a people. Yeah. And if we imagine this moment as like another, you're you're at this crux, like you're at this this point where something new is something new needs to be born. I mean, I know we've we talk about the birth of the messianic era and and what and, and all that, but somehow thinking of that also having been a factor in the original yeah. really like founding of the people as a free people. I don't know. It gives it, it gives it a little, a, a nicer, like a richer resonance. For me. I really love that Amy. And you know, the, they 
they are resonant with each other. And also the difference here is that text was the people being born anew out of the oppressions of Egypt, a foreign mm-hmm. power. Here, the birth is, it's almost a rebirth away from the elitism and the military power that has built up in the Davidic monarchy in Jerusalem. Yeah. So now you've got to be reborn from where you yourself have gotten to. That's right. It's a birth from the oppressions that you, your own people has created for yourself. And the way they're they're thinking about it, or Mike is thinking about it, seems to be let's go back to the point where we went astray, either mm-hmm. in Jeru- uh, in Bethlehem, either when uh, we chose David, or mm-hmm. when David was a shepherd and then became something other than a shepherd. And that let's go back and try to reclaim that period uh, from our past. We ca- we knew for a minute, or at least there was potential for us for a minute, but look where yeah. we have ended up. Yeah. So the description. Of this ruler, I mean, it's it's probably worth saying. I don't know if it's important that this ruler is not called a king here. Mosheel is one who has dominion over a rule, so it it is a ruler, but it's the word king isn't anywhere to be found mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that mm-hmm. matters or not. I mean, that seems significant to me. The description is about one who stands with the flock, one who stands in the strength of the Lord, uh, one who brings peace. I'm just curious how, like, when you envision this person that Micah is talking about, like, what what seems important to you? I love the way that this description, it does use the word might and power. Yeah. But it is the might of the Lord and the power of the name of the Lord. Yeah. And the person who is standing in that position is a shepherd. Who, yeah. Who is a is a protective figure is like is is a leader but not not the leader who has the sort of might himself not it's not military imagery i think the juxtaposition of shepherd and might and power of the lord are is i don't know i don't even know what adjective to use is significant is worth paying attention to is there's something there yeah no, I love that. There is because there is absolutely a strength here, and also the very last line is one of peace, and this idea that it is because this ruler is great throughout the earth. Like the way that I kind of put it together for myself is that this this person has such gentle power, or mm. something like that, like strong, but strong in a way that creates peace, strong in a way that is protective, and strong in a way that's not his own power, as you're saying, but is the power of God. And that that makes him respected throughout the whole world. Not just like I'm not just on team Judah here, right? I'm on team let's let's just have everybody live in peace. And if we all sort of are able to do that, then there doesn't need to be aggression. I don't quite know what that looks like. Like what what do you do on Monday morning when you wake up if you're that person? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, if we're an easy job, you know. Yeah. Yeah, as you were talking, it made me think about, again, like in our in our interactions with children in particular, but not just children, any people who are in distress, 
like this idea that what they need is for you to share your calm, not to mm. enter into their yes. distress or meet their distress with more distress and try to crush it. You know, just you are the fount of calm. Yeah. <laughs> which is a whole other scale of it when you picture you're dealing with militaries and like the level of like the way the ante is raised when you have grown people who are panicking and have weapons, which is like a whole, you know, a whole different thing than a child having a tantrum. I love that you go to a parenting metaphor. Like what was occurring to me as you were talking was, (laughs) do you remember the dog whisperer? Caesar Milan, he was like yeah, super popular, like, uh-huh. I don't know, 2008 when I got my first dog or whatever. And his his thing was calm, assertive. And that's what dogs need is you're very calm, but you're in charge. And yeah. so for like, I don't know, like two or three years of my life, that was how I thought about everything. That's how I thought about my dog. That's how I thought about teaching my glasses. <laughs> it's actually not a bad way to parent it's a kid not either. Bad. Like, no, it's not. Calm, it's assertive. not a bad way to do most things. We can mm-hmm. learn a lot from the dog whisperer. The dog whisperer. Oh, I miss that guy. He might still be around. I don't know. I just, <laughs> my second, repeats, my first dog I got, do you remember Sidori? She named yeah, after the Yeah, I remember Sidori. <laughs> the, the barmaid in the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh. I was going to say, yeah, who was Sidori named for? Right, my the barmaid. My chagrin. Yeah, I was not married at the time. So when I, when I moved out here uh, from Atlanta and I had a new job, I didn't have any friends, I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. And so I just spent all my time with this dog. And so I was very calm and assertive. And she was such a great dog. And then in 2016, I got my second dog who came in with a homeless person into Mercy Church and just was in crisis. And so I took her into my house and uh, I didn't have any time. I had a job and I was married and she, I was not calm or assertive. <laughs> and that, that child, and she's that, a maniac. That yeah. dog is insane. She's a sweet dog, but she is ornery and she's always up to something. Yeah. So, so this ruler from Bethlehem is meant to be like 2008 Bobby and his dog and not, not 2016 Bobby and his other dog. Uh, anyway, we have gone astray. <laughs> I, I have gone astray. Okay, anything else we should say about the ruler from Bethlehem? You know, I just, because the, there was a versification issue, I just want to, I knew that I was supposed to stop somewhere in verse 4, but I wasn't sure what 4a meant or something yeah. like that. So I just want to point out that then immediately after this, it goes back to talking about Assyria. Yeah. And the only reason I want to point that out is just that, you know, these texts have a way of being in time and being out of time. And I think it's, it's helpful for me that like right after this stuff that we could broaden this message to dog training. Like we could, like it's such a, universally relevant message and then to have it pop back into like there is a moment in history yeah that this sprung out of yeah i don't know for me it's just helpful to remember like there is an original context to this yeah and no, that's absolutely we don't right. want to i don't want to totally lose track of that and i think that the maybe the reason the narrative lectionary cut that out is because if you keep reading there then it's he will shepherd assyria with the sword <laughs> <laughs> so this beautiful, uh, peaceful shepherd king uh, is shepherding by way of military aggression. Not right. aggression, military defense, I think. Yeah. Which complicates my It, co- right, it complicates it. It's, right, it is complicated. It is yeah. the, uh, how this would actually happen in a military conflict. Yeah. Realistically. Yeah. Is, is complicated. 
All right, so the last passage from today is what you were describing earlier as one of the most famous passages in the Bible, which I think is exactly right, uh, which is in Micah 6, 6 to 8. We read this in the summer, but it I, somehow it feels different coming from where we just came from rather than headed toward where we were headed last time. So anyway, Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. So I want to get to the famous verse 8 in a minute, but there's quite a buildup before we get there in verses 6 and 7, in which somebody, who I read as sort of a rhetorical construct that Micah has created, although I don't know how, I don't know how you read it, is trying to figure out, like, what should I do that will be pleasing to the Lord? Mm-hmm. And sort of offers this idea of sacrifices and then, like, lots of sacrifices and then maybe the most sacrifices child sacrifice (laughs) yeah yeah can what do you think is happening there in six and seven with that sort of progression of of sacrifices i mean i feel like it 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 kind of makes me laugh but it's it's this like you're aware that something's wrong and it's big (laughs) and so you're trying to think of ways to 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 make it go away. Yeah. You know, and and this 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 individual is, you know, of course, wrongly thinking that you can that if you just sacrifice enough that it will deal with whatever the problem is. And so yeah. if for a really big problem, you have to re- have a really big sacrifice and they're they're just really missing the point. I think even the point that a text like Leviticus would have about sacrifice. Oh, like, absolutely. You know, the, the idea was never you're just supposed to sacrifice more and more and more and continue to go about your business, you know, being terrible to your neighbors and violent in the world. Like that's, exactly. you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that was never the point. Yeah. Um, but people, humans really like looking for those, those ways to sort of like segment off yes. their their religious intention from the rest of their lives. And that yeah. seems to be what this person is trying to do. I love that, Amy. I think that's exactly right. And your point about Leviticus, I think, is right on. And your point about contemporary life not being that different than this, I think, is right on, too. That We have a religious problem, which is God is mad at us. And so there must be a religious solution, which is to sacrifice more or to pray more or to confess more or whatever it is. And... This seems to be saying like, okay, yeah, I mean, like, religious solutions are great. (laughs) And also, like, look at the way you're living your life. Yeah. (laughs) We, okay, this is a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully funny. When my kids were little, I don't know how little, like maybe, maybe seven and nine or something. Not as little as your kids, but littler. I once found on my laptop in a random file, a PowerPoint presentation called Mommy is Mad. (laughs) And I opened the presentation and the first page said Mommy is Mad by Anonymous, which of course was spelled really hysterically wrong. 
And then the next slide was just like, what should we do with all these question marks? And of course, my thought at the time was like, well, you could get off her freaking laptop. Why don't you start there? Like, what do you mean? What should we do? Stop. Go clean your room. What do you mean? What should you do? Yeah. That's what this is. They're making a PowerPoint presentation. God is mad. <laughs> what should we do? You know what to that. do. And then their solutions are like, let's buy mommy flowers. Or I know. Like, no, mommy doesn't want your flowers. Get off her laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Get off your laptop, clean your room. Oh, that's exactly like, yeah. Every year that rolls around now, it's like, what do you want for Father's Day? And I'm like, I want my house to be clean. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need a tie. No. <laughs> I love I not artwork or whatever, but like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's a really nice analogy. And I mean, I love the, like, to me, this is like Micah has created a, like, straw person who is just, yeah. like, being completely ridiculous. Like, maybe, like, a cow. That might do it. And then, like, okay, not a cow. Uh, maybe uh, a thousand. Uh, my kid? Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, then uh, what about my child? Yeah. And so, like, and clearly that last one is meant to be, like, this, like, that is so ridiculous that you would ever yeah it's it's a caricature of that exactly tendency in the community i think that's Mm -hmm. right yeah so the solution then in verse eight he has told you a a human one here is oh human or oh mortal or whatever uh what is good and what the lord requires so here i'm going to give it to you Uh, do justice here embraceful embrace faithful love walk humbly with your god I'm curious. Well, I let me first let me just ask you what like those three things, justice, kindness, humility. Mm-hmm. What do you think that is talking about? How would you do that? <laughs> That's a great question. And I will say it is because that that question is so hard that people want to just make sacrifices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it helps me to try to look back at the Hebrew of these words because maybe in part because I've heard this quote so many times with slightly different translations or these words are just, I mean, justice could mean a lot of things. I mean, mishpat is the word used for justice. And I at least understand that as like fairness. Mm -hmm. Like it's not the kind of justice that's like righteousness. Not that righteousness is great. We should, you know, pursue that also. But this is like, is that how you would think of mishpat? Is like yeah, fair measures. Don't cheat people. Exactly. Like play by the rules that are actually fair to everybody. Yeah. Be reasonable. Like this. It seems like it shouldn't be a very high bar, although clearly it is for people. Yeah. No, I definitely read it that way, and it's having some sort of connection to like. I don't want to say legal matters, but I like. The principles that make up yes. for a good community, like live live your life in the ways that one lives in order to have community flourish, something like that. Yeah, no, and I agree. I don't want to quite say like legal, but it's like, yeah, it's like the the basic rules for reasonable engagement with people. You know, yeah. like you don't don't use unequal measures for things. Don't, yeah, yeah. you know, if you find something that belongs to someone else, give it back to them. Like it's not, yeah. you know, it's pretty, pretty concrete stuff. That's like. the word I was looking for. Yeah, concrete. That's exactly it. It's not some sort of like abstract principle, but there's right. actual things you can actually do. Yeah. Yeah. To respect your fellow human being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you do with uh, em- the Embrace Faithful Love? 
Embrace faith, faithful love. So the Hebrew is ahavat chesed, which is like love of the word chesed. You know, it's it's often translated as loving kindness, which I read somewhere that like loving kindness is not really a word in English. It was <laughs> yeah. created entirely to translate the word chesed. Yeah. But I think of it as this like, like if if mishpat is sort of like the concrete sort of requirements of like decency to other people, chesed is like the, the stuff that's not required, like be generous with acts of kindness and assume the best and go out of your way to f- mm. like find ways to do something that will help, help the people you're interact. Like it, it's I this like that. overflowing, unnecessary, <laughs> extravagant. I mean, this is saying it is necessary, but yeah. it's like beyond the sort of the rules. Yeah. There are never going to be rules about chesed that tell you. Yeah. what chesed has to look like, but it's this movement towards other people. And, I love that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What What else would you add, Bert? No, I love I love that way of talking about it. The, the expression that was coming to my mind is fidelity in relationship or something like that. So mm-hmm. we're in relationship with other people and we value those relationships. And here it's loving that, right? Love of fidelity in relationship. And so mm. it's um, sort of relishing the opportunity to be in relationship with other people, sort of broadly construed, and then doing what one needs to do in order to foster that relationship. That, that phrase of chesed is used, as you know, often in the Hebrew Bible of the way God acts toward us, mm-hmm. um, like covenant, covenanted fidelity or something like that. And so... I think there is an invitation here to be in relationship with one another in the way that we wish God was in, wish for God to be in love with us or in relationship with us, mm-hmm. um, which is, I mean, a big ask. <laughs> but I mean, I again, I think it's like, yeah, what it's a big ask, but also the principle of it is really simple, as you're saying, which is, yeah, go above and beyond, care for go one another, go above and beyond in your care for people. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly that's all it is. But I love that you drew out. It's not just do chesed. It's love of chesed. Love chesed. You know, yeah. like nurture in yourself a genuine yeah. love and attachment to the idea that this is this is what we do. We do chesed. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. What about that last phrase? Walk modestly with your God. The the word I, I wish they would I wish they had used a different word. <laughs> But but they didn't, and that's okay. The the word that they use in Hebrew has, over time, grown to have more complicated associations in the Jewish word. Oh, interesting. Sniut, as modesty, becomes associated with mostly how women should comport themselves and dress. <laughs> oh, so it's like, it's a whole other, you know, that's not what they're talking about here. Micah's not talking about that, but I'm just realizing, like, in my own mind, like. yeah. I have baggage around that word. But I think the idea is from, okay, the way I read it is sort of, you're not trying to draw attention to yourself. Yeah. Like you are walking with God in a way that that you don't you don't need that. Like you don't need to put on a chesed show. Like everyone look at me because I'm doing these things. Or like you have enough, I'm thinking back to the calm, but what was it? Firm, but calm leadership. 
Caesar Milan was calm assertive. Calm assertive, yeah. Yeah. But that if if you have when you have leaders in your life who are calm and present and, you know, hold clear boundaries or whatever, as we might imagine that God would or we would want to be in the world, the idea is that we don't become super hungry for attention or praise or it doesn't have to be about us. I guess that's, I see all of this sort of, you know, fitting together that we're, we are secure in our relationship with God and don't have to make everything about us. I love that, Amy. What do you, what do you have for that one? No, I think, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Not drawing attention to oneself. So you're with God and like God is the point and like doing the things that God has invited us to do and not needing to be recognized or like uh, celebrated for doing that. It's just the way, just the way that we are. Mm -hmm. The other piece that's in there that uh, I think is really important is the, the verb at the beginning he has told you, which is in the mm-hmm. past tense. So this is not news. Like God is not now mm-hmm. telling you this is the way to make things better, but God has already told you. And the way that I read that is you've got the Torah, y'all. Like go read Leviticus and go read yeah. uh, Deuteronomy yeah. and go listen to Bible Worm's summer series on economic justice. <laughs> <laughs> And there is a way, it's not, it's not a mystery. Like there is a way in which uh, God has envisioned people living together in ways that do all of these things. And as you named some of them earlier, right? If somebody loses something, give it back to them. If you see your neighbors, what is that one you like to talk about? Or you've talked about in the past that I really liked that if your enemy's ox falls in a- Yeah, falls under its weight or something you're like that. required to help. You are required to help. Even if you hate that guy. You hate that guy. He's the worst guy. Yeah. He's got all the wrong, like, election signs on his lawn. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, that guy drives me crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah. I got to even help that guy. Yeah, this is just the way we live together in community. And, I I mean, I love that it's like a, a reorientation to things that God has already said. And so just live, live in the Torah. And all of this stuff is not... Is not gonna is not a problem, but we have so much trouble living with all of those we have so perspectives much in mind. Yeah, I love what you've done though with it in this conversation is to say like all of those specific prescriptions in Deuteronomy say are really the working out of these general principles mm-hmm. about caring for community, loving the relationships that we have with the people around us and doing it in humility and reverence for God. Like if you keep those three sort of ideas in mind, the rest of it kind of flows out from there. And you yeah. might have to go flip to Deuteronomy and say, what do I do when my enemy's ox right. falls down? But you kind of know already in your heart because like that's what you would do if you loved kindness and you know were humble with God. Yeah. All right, Amy, so that brings us to the point in our conversation where we try to make connections between this text and the contemporary world and our communities. What are you thinking? You know, as you were talking just now about the connection to Deuteronomy, I love that because I think the the Tanakh gives us both. Like it gives us, if you're sort of a bottom-up thinker and you're like, give me 8,000 examples, (laughs) you can find that. And if you're like, no, that's overwhelming and I I need the other way. Then you have Micah who will say like, okay, I'm going to give you the general principles and you can 
sort of figured out from there. And also you can, I feel like you can go off course with either of them. Like you can become obsessed with the details of every case that's presented in Deuteronomy, but then fail to extrapolate from that anything that's not specifically mentioned in Deuteronomy, which is many things because that was a long time ago. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. Or you can read, I mean, it's easy, I think, a lot for a lot of people to read Micah, and this sounds, it can sound really vague. Like, what does it mean, do justice, love, love goodness? Like, and so it's, I don't know. So, like, I want to say, yeah. like, it should be easy. Like, now we have the instructions from both perspectives. This should be easy, but it's not easy. Yeah. And I was thinking back to the story of Naaman that we just read recently of his healing and how when Elisha, right? It's Elisha that he's talking to. Yeah. Elisha says, you know, you can you can be healed just by going in that river right there. And he's like, he he doesn't want it to be that easy. Like he yeah. he feels like it should be something else, something that feels apart from, you know, apart from the norm in some way. And this is just another text that I feel like is telling us, no, it's not about creating a separate religious ritual. It's not about, you know, this thing that you can isolate in time. It's the everyday, and clearly it's not easy because otherwise we would be doing it. Yeah. That's not a very profound message to offer, but but it's it's where I where I am, I guess, that I need to check in with myself periodically about what is it that I need? Do I need the general principle or am I getting so loosey goosey on the general principle that I need to go back to a little more rigid? Like, no, this is actually going to tell me what to do until I get into some habits and then I can extrapolate. Like I find myself sort of going back and forth between the two poles. So I'm, I'm grateful that the, the text overall gives me both. Yeah, no, I really like that. And, you know, our summer series, Mm. that one, you know, because I can get into the point where I'm like, you know, I kind of do justice. I I love kindness. And then, but then when we went back and read Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy 15, which is like, hey, every seventh year, like if anybody owes you anything, just write it off and be like, you don't owe me that anymore. That reminds, going back to the specifics reminds me (laughs) that there really is like, if you think you're doing justice, you probably really aren't. <laughs> like the, the bar is always a little, like there's always more, like I could be more yeah. just, I could be more. And so to not get overwhelmed by that, by sort of inhabiting these principles, but also I, I like you, I found that sort of reorientation, like, oh, there really is a bar that I am not living up to. Like, what could I do in my own life that would be more just in the way that, that the Torah envisions? I'm not sure I've made any profound changes since uh, July, but it definitely keeps me uh, reorienting myself you, to yeah. not being so it, proud of it. It like what is it? We need to agitate the comfortable, distress yeah. the undistressed, something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Comfort the comfort. Comfort the comfort. Of, nope. Nope. The opposite comfort of that. The comfort dis- the comfortable. <laughs> hey, <you> look- <laughs> we spend a lot of time doing that. Yep. You look really nice. I'm gonna there make on you the more couch. comfortable. Would you like a blankie? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Afflict the comfortable and comfort, yeah. comfort the afflicted. There I think you that go. Is better. That's yeah, it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I love that, Amy. I uh, 
I think something similar. The other piece that's in this text for me that seems really important is way back at the beginning where we started thinking about how we are all tied up in this thing together and that when those in positions of power and those in places of economic prosperity are pursuing our own ends, it ends up having very damaging effects for people who are not in the centers of power mm-hmm. and people who are not in places of economic prosperity. And you can parse that out in different ways as you want to, but to realize that the sins of the powerful really affect the whole world. Mm-hmm. For me, that's always an important reminder. And I am always closer to being in Jerusalem in that metaphorical sense than I am being in the Shefela. And so for me to keep that in mind, I think is really important. The piece that I love in the second part of the text is that there does this text does envision a ruler, that it is possible that people in charge could be in charge differently than we have been in charge up until now, um, which I think is a critique of economic centralization. Like Jerusalem became the economic power, the place where the money all flowed, the taxes all came there. Mm-hmm. It became a place of military aggression. Like we're going to defend ourselves. We're going to uh, make allegiances and alliances with other governments. And it's going to end up affecting the people who are out on the outskirts of, of things. And there are obvious parallels with our own uh, time and place. And so there is a critique here of the way humans manage things and that there is another way that it could be done and that it, there is actually the possibility of a, of a ruler who could choose to do things differently than that. Mm-hmm. And then also there's what you were saying from Micah 6, which is, but you, individual person, can also do your part, which mm-hmm. is these three things. And so there's this big systemic issue that's going to require a rebirth and a reorientation of the whole community together. And the first step in that is for each one of us to live uh, justly, kindly, and with humility. So I like keeping both of those things in mind, the societal transformation, which very much needs to stay in front of us, but can be completely overwhelming. And also, what do you do when you wake up on a Monday morning? Yeah. Well, here's the list. And that may not transform the world, but it's going to transform the world. Right. And so Micah gives us both of those in yeah. this passage. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's almost got like two the two poles right in this text itself. Yeah, it's They're exactly both, right. Both true. For Christian readers, we can read chapter 5 and think about, well, what does that mean for Jesus as a ruler? But even mm-hmm. if you don't make that move, you can still think about what does that mean for us as people who live in in the world. Uh, and And I think both of those can be useful. Yeah. All right, Amy, well, next time we're gonna stay in our prophetic trajectory. We're gonna be in Isaiah 36 and 37, and then back in Isaiah 2, which is also quite a famous passage that uh, Isaiah shares with Micah, incidentally. Beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into printing hooks. All right, that sounds awesome. Okay. I'll see you then. I'll see you then. Have a good week. You too. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. 
patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the prophet Isaiah's response to Assyrian aggression in Isaiah 36 and 37, and his vision of swords beaten into plowshares in Isaiah 2. Until then, keep on digging.